Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Freelancer Show. This is episode 330, and today we're going to be talking about how to handle interviews as a freelancer. And today on the panel, we have Jeremy Green. Hey, everybody. And I am Eric Dietrich. And that is it for the panel today. So let's dive into it. Um, this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So this question actually came from a Slack that I'm in, and it was kind of interesting. Um, I was soliciting show topics, and somebody chimed in and basically asked uh, about the subject of interviews, and they phrased it in a way, basically, how do I handle stump the chump tech interviews that you have to endure to get contracts? And for those of you who don't know what that means, a stump the chump interview is kind of a less than friendly term for uh, the sorts of interviews that tech companies do where they're asking you about like algorithms and whiteboards and you know, language syntax trivia and such. Um, yeah, where so they that's ask of, you to manually reverse a linked list uh, so that you can get a job tweaking CSS. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I don't think probably either of us has necessarily the strongest pin or uh, uh, the best opinion of that practice. But at any rate, um, so the question is, well, how do you handle that as a freelancer? And I, I think that's a pretty interesting question and there's a lot to unpack because the question presupposes that that's part of the um, freelancing process in the first place, which I don't know that I would. But um, so there's kind of the tactical question of how do you handle that if you're in the mix? And then maybe the broader question of should you be doing that? You know, but we can maybe get to that later. So I guess, I don't know, do you want to tackle first up? Like, how do you handle that sort of thing? Sure. Uh, I mean, it can be hard. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes the existence of the stump the chump interview, to me, I will see as a red flag kind of in and of itself. Uh, it sort of indicates to me that the client isn't viewing me as a competent professional that is going to be able to understand some business problems and help them find solutions to them, it indicates that they are viewing me as a, a pair of hands that is going to do some work and they want to, you know, verify that I have all this trivia memorized uh, such that I never have to go look up anything. And, uh, and I, and I also think that it sort of betrays a fundamental misunderstanding about how, most of programming is actually accomplished on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, I, I, there are dozens, hundreds of topics that I 
know well enough to know how to craft a good Google search for it, but not that I know well enough to be able to rattle off everything perfectly off the top of my head. And in, mm. in my opinion, that is totally fine. You know, I, I think I would be doing myself and my clients a disservice if I tried to do all of this stuff by memory because it can be very complex. There's a lot of ins and outs. Um, you know, in in my opinion, looking some stuff up, going to read the API docs when you need to is not a bad thing. Uh, and there's no need to discourage that. Um, and so that said, you know, sometimes in interviews, I will try to say basically that, you know, um, say, okay, I know that I'm not going to get all the details of this right because it's the type of thing that I would normally go look up. But here's what I can talk about just off the top of my head. And here are, you know, terms that I would use to be able to search for to find exactly what I needed to be able to make progress if I was being blocked by this. Um, I think that's kind of my first first take at how to handle that sort of thing. Uh, what about you, Eric? So you just said something in there that reminded me of a great quote I saw the other day. I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but it was basically like a programmer, uh, your brain isn't meant to be like a repository for all of these facts. It's meant to serve as an index so that you know where to go Google for them. Absolutely. Um, so I think the the easy answer for me is if I were faced with something like this at, at this point in my life and career, I just like wouldn't do it. But like, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to maybe walk it back in time to a point where I would have, and I'm with you, I would have been very leery of this because it indicates, yes, like as you're saying that you're being uh, considered as a pair of hands, um, but I'll even expand on that to say, I think it also indicates that like, if you look at this from a business perspective and you're running your own freelance business, it indicates that they view your business as a complete commodity. And so they're kind of interviewing you, um, which is like the equivalent of going through like the vendor acquisition process or like vetting partners or whatever. Um, it, it's a race to the bottom. Like they're, um, they're sort of think of it as like a request for proposals and there's you and there's all sorts of other people and they're putting you all through a bunch of hoops because they really can't tell the difference, your, your commodity labor to them. Um, so in that situation, I would kind of look at this and think to myself, do I need this work that is almost certainly going to look like long range pseudo employment? Cause like you don't, interview strategic vendor partners, so to speak. You interview people where you have a job description and for whatever reason, you're filling it with a contractor instead of a um, full-time employee. And so I'd take stock of that situation. You know, how much do I need this work? And the answer might be a lot, especially if you're just getting started. And then I'd kind of look at my other options and um, probably try to prefer those if instead of these types of gotcha interviews, they were doing something more along the lines of having more traditional interviews um, that were actual conversations about business value and stuff. So I guess that's a long way of saying that my absolute default preference would be to avoid this kind of thing at all costs for a variety of reasons. If I were in the middle of it, I guess I would try to do my best and um, work on my prospects, assuming I landed that job, um, you know, in the evenings or what have you. It's just hard to put myself back there exactly. Cause even as a, software engineer that was employed, I stayed away from those types of interviews. Yeah. And I mean, the, that sort of, you know, the stump the chump variety can kind of be hard to see coming. 
because it just is couched as, hey, we're going to do a tech interview. And, you know, tech interviews that focus on sort of bigger picture stuff, you know, how how would you handle architecting this kind of a problem? Or, you know, if, if you ran into this sort of a problem, what sort of changes do you think could be made in the system to improve it? You know, those sort of answers might be designed to figure out if somebody's familiar with caching strategies or, you know, alternate, not necessarily alternative, not alternatives to MVC, but like, uh, ways that you augment MVC patterns, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and so there are, you know, certainly brands of tech interviews that I think are very useful, um, but they're really hard to differentiate from the Stump the Chump interview kind of ahead of time, and you don't know until you're in it. Uh, and so it's hard to know that, oh, man, I should have studied up on syntax of javascript last night or you know whatever the thing is um and so yeah it can, it can be hard to prepare and do anything ahead of time because you don't know it's coming until it's there <laughs> yeah that is pretty opaque from outside you know one thing that pops into my head is if you're if you find yourself and and this requires you know some nerves of steel but if you find yourself in that situation you might kind of gently put a halt to it and say, listen, um, I am, you know, kind of more of a specialist. I, I tend to solve a more specialized set of problems and I like to be in conversations about business value with clients. So I feel like maybe we've gotten our wires crossed somewhere here, but this, um, you know, I, if you're vetting candidates this way, you're typically looking for somebody that's kind of more of a pair of hands or more granular. Uh, I'm freewheeling with this a little bit, but if you have a stock uh, thing like that to say prepared, it's kind of a Hail Mary. But like if you're going to fail this awkward thing anyway, <laughs> um, it might be a way to sort of level set and and. Um, uh, reframe the conversation a bit where they're probably not going to say, oh, okay, you're hired. Um, but it might shift how they think of you. And it might actually shade subsequent conversations where maybe they're not finding the person they want. And then they give you a call back and say, hey, let's talk a little more. Uh, pretty unlikely, but you never know. And I don't think you have anything to lose if, um, you know, especially if you feel like it's not going to go well. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, depending on the outrageousness of the stump the chump question you may even just ask you know is this actually relevant to the position that i'm interviewing for uh you know i i was under the assumption that i'm here to talk about working in ruby on rails for you guys which is a memory managed language and there's no reason that you would be maintaining your own linked list and need to reverse it uh, is that something that you guys actually do? And, you know, is that part of this job? If so, I may have gotten the wrong idea of what you're looking for. Um, you know, that's not always going to gonna pass because if you're interviewing for, you know, to be a JavaScript contractor and they're grilling you on some of the finer points of how JavaScript handles things that may or may not be numbers, uh, you know, it's a little harder to say, well, that's, that has no bearing on any of the work that I would be doing, um, but is also still a stump the chump type question. I don't know if you're like me, 
But when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right theme to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains. And you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. Getting a domain that's relevant to your brand, that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just, it's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up. And so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. We have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so I probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that devchat is about tech. And, and I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do. It just sticks in people's head. It's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year and uh, go check out all the new technology. They switched over to ces.tech from cesweb.org. Viacom has Viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose Insight.tech for their latest initiative. Startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash freelancer and use the coupon code freelancer.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at cmaxw and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this. And I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash freelancer and get this deal today. Yeah, I think it shoot like as we're discussing that, it's, it strikes me that if you're thinking in terms of, you know, your freelance business, if you're in this situation, who is your buyer and who is your con contact there? You know, who are you engaging with? And the answer, if somebody's administering stuff like this is probably some kind of tech lead, like um, at least to the, who are you engaged with? The buyer might be a whole department or a VP somewhere that you're probably not even going to talk to. Um, and so I think maybe like it's worth transitioning into this discussion uh, over the course of the long haul. Do you want to be doing technical interviews or do you want to be shifting to a situation where maybe you have a different buyer, a different person that you're pitching to, and you're having different kinds of conversations with prospects? What are your takes on that? Like, do you find yourself doing technical interviews these days, or do you have different sorts of introductions to clients? Uh, I don't do a lot of technical interviews anymore. Uh, I often am, you know, I, I generally have enough word of mouth business coming my way that. Uh, I've already come highly recommended on the technology side uh, and it usually comes down to, you know, what is the business relationship going to look like? Um, there, there definitely will be some, you know, sort of macro tech discussions just about, you know, the, the generalities of their stack and, you know, make sure that I actually have some familiarity with the things that they're using or intend to use. Um, but I, it's been a long time since I've had a real uh, stump the chump type interview. Uh, and I've even had, so, and to the point of, you know, you ideally want to be able to avoid those interviews. Um, one way 
to avoid that is to set yourself up to where you do have inbound leads coming to you saying, hey, we're pretty confident we could use your help. Um, and just kind of a little anecdote to illustrate what I'm talking about there. Uh, some number of years ago, I gave a, a talk at RailsConf um, about using OAuth to be able to begin splitting a big monolithic uh, project into services and how you can use that to just you know pull off one little thing that you're going to implement this new thing as a service that just can integrate with your monolith but isn't directly embedded in it um, and I've had a couple of leads come to me just from that talk saying hey we saw your talk we think you can help us let's talk uh, and one of those even explicitly called out in one of our very first meetings said you know we, there's no need for us to do a tech interview I saw your talk I know you, that you know what you're talking about we hmm. just have to figure out if we can work together and if we can meet on a price that everybody's happy with. Um, and so that's, you know, that was fantastic. Uh, that's really good because the, the buyers come in in hot, they're ready to buy. I don't have to really do much convincing. It's just, yeah, sure. Let's figure out how we can work together. Um, and that also kind of turns it around to where it makes it easy for me to frame things in, okay, I need to make sure that you're a good fit for me. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of a long-winded anecdote about how building visible public authority can really help level up the types of conversations that you have with prospects. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and it's making me think that, like, a good way to reason through the health of your business, um, you know, as a freelancer, solo consultant, whatever you want to call it, if you start to think of all of these things, like I would advise anyway, even if you're doing stump the chump interviews, maybe stop thinking of them as interviews and start thinking of them as sales conversations because interviews are is what somebody who is a um, salaried employee does to get a job. Uh, sales conversations are what people who are business owners do in order to get business. And when you start thinking of it that way versus like other sales conversations that you're uh, more experienced with or more familiar with the stump, the chump interview is perhaps the worst imaginable sales conversation you could be having because you have two parties. One of them clearly has all of the power and is saying to the other one, we have you and we have all these other kind of undifferentiated laborers that we can't really tell the difference between. So here's this sort of obstacle course you have to jump through and whichever one of you does that the best will get a call back. And you know, the rest of you, you're lucky if we bother to tell you not like, so if you start thinking of that as your sales conversation, you start to think, how could I have better sales conversations? And as Jeremy is pointing out here, like uh, inbound marketing is an excellent way to start upping the sales conversation game. Uh, like, I, I love that anecdote. Um, hey, we don't even need to bother to do a tech interview. You know, we can see that you know what you're doing. And so there's a couple of things I think are going on there is one, you've got authority that's established, uh, you know, by giving that talk. And then two, somebody attending not only sees that you're capable, but they also see that there's business value to something you're doing. Uh, yes, I want this monolith broken up, um, you know, to make things more flexible or what have you. So you are capable of doing something that, 
I can see will help our bottom line. So let's talk about that. Whereas if you're in the stump the chump situation, somebody somewhere has already figured out all the business value and they could not care less about your opinion about business value. You're just there to do a very specific piece of execution. Um, so I guess all of this I'm saying is a way to like kind of look to the horizon, even if you're in the middle of it, you've worked um, nine to five maybe for a lot of your career and have gone freelance and all you've known is interviews, um, this might be a helpful way to uh, make it clear that there is a world where you're not getting work this way. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, I think that should be a goal. Like, my, you know, maybe this is a slightly aggressive take on it, but like, I feel like, I, I don't know exactly what the exit criteria is, but I feel like after, I don't know, two years or something, on your own that you probably don't want to be doing things resembling interviews too often anymore, that you should be having different kinds of sales conversations. Uh, and your mileage may vary on that timing. Uh, Cause if you need work, you got to do what you got to do. Yep. You do. <laughs> um, yeah. And one thing that you said there just kind of made me realize that uh, in our opening section about how to handle the stump, the chump interviews, um, I think that even the stump the chump interviews sort of come in two flavors. Um, some is definitely the obstacle course type that you mentioned, where they're they're just looking for right answers, and if you don't give them the answers they want, you know, they you're being docked points essentially. Um, but I think there is another variety that happens sometimes where they are hoping to stump you. So that they can see what your thought patterns look like and get a feel for what you do when you're stumped or blocked. Um, and those, you know, if you're in one of those saying, I don't know the answer to this, but here's how I would go about finding it, uh, that will earn you points. Um, but by the same token, saying exactly that same thing if you're in the obstacle course type uh, is probably going to dock you points. Uh, but in either scenario, I think you probably get docked even more points if you just try to BS your way through it. And it's obvious to the person that you're talking to that you're just BSing instead of being willing to say, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I would never BS my way through anything because if I think of kind of the, I guess, real politic of this, if you will, if you try to BS your way through it, you're almost conceding your own inadequacy versus like if I were in an interview, like if I found myself in such a situation and I were being grilled on something and I didn't think it was relevant, you know, maybe I'm being asked to do some pointer arithmetic in a managed language or something. And if I say uh, I, I don't know that, but I thought we were talking about a managed language, then you're in your own way kind of staying true to your actual knowledge. You're not trying to pull one over on anyone. In fact, you're saying, I don't even know that I think this question is valid. So I think that there ought to be in anything you're doing an underlying confidence in yourself and your skills. Um, uh, and that can seem hard to drum up if you're struggling to find work, but like you are good enough, you know stuff. It might be that this particular thing isn't a fit, but I wouldn't, yeah, it's, it's just not a good look in any way to try to make things up or, or fake your way through it. So yeah, at the very tactical level, please, please don't do that. Yeah, that will shoot your credibility faster than almost anything you can do. It's 
you know, you're getting off on proving that you are fine with lying to your prospect or customer uh, if you feel like that's what will make you look the best. Uh, and nobody who's looking for help with their business wants that. Yeah, definitely. So I guess if we're looking at, um, you know, the idea of how do you get to a better quality of interview? How do you get to a better quality of sales conversations? Like you had mentioned, um, uh, doing some marketing and looking for inbound leads. Like, do you have other ideas for things that have moved you along to maybe where you're having more genuine sales conversations and fewer sort of asymmetrical qualifying interviews? Um, I mean, I think various steps that I've taken to kind of build authority and raise my visibility have helped, uh, you know, giving talks at local meetups has certainly helped, uh, some local inbound leads come my way, uh, giving talks at national level and international level, uh, conferences has resulted in leads coming my way, um, you know, just attending the conferences and talking to people and hearing what sort of problems they've had um, has helped a lot. Um, one thing that I think can be useful is um, a lot of conferences will have a opportunities board or jobs board. Uh, and they're not always for people looking for full-time employment. You can find a lot of posts on there where people are looking for contractors to help with short-term projects, stuff like that. Um, and I think if you can actually catch the people that are from those companies that are representing them at the conference and talk to them at the conference, that sort of changes the the nature of the interactions that you have with them versus mm. if you had just you know, found a, a job posting on GitHub jobs and put in a, you know, the, the web form that's their, the interview, um, you know, it gives you a chance to, to really talk to them sort of outside of their prescribed, you know, company mandated processes and kind of present yourself as, Hey, I'm, I'm sure I could help you guys, but I need to know more about what you're doing to make sure that you're a good fit for me so that, you will get the most value out of it. Um, and just being able to start a conversation in that way, I think changes your, changes the perception that the prospect has of you versus the web form. Yeah, that actually reminded me of um, sort of an element of pre-qualification. Like you were talking about uh, having this happen at a conference and I started to think, so if you're at that conference, especially if you're a speaker or something, and you encounter that board and you respond in some way, whether by directly approaching somebody or what have you, um, there is an element, I guess, of pre-qualification there, I would think. And it reminded me of, um, I used to do uh, training videos for Pluralsight.com. Uh, and I got some leads through the Pluralsight organization for some of the things that I had made videos about. And when I was called in to do that consulting, there was no sort of semblance of an interview, there was kind of this element of, um, I'm trying to remember, I had done one about static code analysis. 
And so a couple of companies called looking for static code analysis work, and they didn't bring me in and you know have some architect ask me if I know what cyclomatic complexity is. Instead, they came at it from you know the perspective of we can see based on what you've done out there in the world. You know this is a pre-qualifying thing, mm-hmm. so let's just talk about how you might be able to help us. So I guess. If you're in kind of stump the chump sorts of interviews, I don't know exactly how you work your way to that. But if you're building training material, putting yourself out there somehow, giving talks, um, then the leads that come in through those things are going to be naturally less inclined to sort of put you through the standard uh, rigmarole of filtering candidates. So that's a great point, I think. Hey, folks, I found a terrific tool for planning out your projects and setting timelines. It's actually terrific. If you've ever used a Gantt chart before, it's based on that, but it's got a whole lot of other great features. It's an interactive online project management tool for people who love planning with timelines and Gantt charts. The thing that I like about it is that I can actually plan things out and I can get a tentative timeline for what's going on. And then it's got a simple UI with drag and drop capabilities that make it really easy for me to adjust the timeline. And it'll automatically adjust everything else based on what is dependent on what is dependent on what. And it's just, it's terrific. Um, so the, the online process and learning curve are really, really short. It's a terrific fit for both individual freelancers and for teams. Project coordinators love the simple planning and other great features like workload, task assignments, deadlines, critical path, uh, baseline. Uh, teams use it for online co- uh, collaboration. To, you can leave comments, you can attach files, you can send notifications, the whole nine yards. Um, it integrates with Jira if you're using Jira. But the other killer feature for me was that you can actually switch it over and you can see it in a Kanban board view, which is awesome. You can get a 14-day trial at gantpro.com. You can also use their software development project template if that's what you're into. And that's at gantpro.com slash software dash development dash plan dash template. And if you use the code devchat, you can get $50 off for using Gantt Pro. So go check it out at gantpro.com. Yeah, anything you can do to to kind of circumvent the weed out process that a lot of companies have is going to help because you know, if you if you're at the point where you are applying to let's say a job that somebody posted on Dice or you know, LinkedIn or something, chances are that company is just being flooded with low quality applicants and once that flood starts, their only rational way to deal with it is to find any metric at all by which they can rule some people out so that they have a smaller pool of people that they actually have to evaluate. And I think it's that weed out process that can be a driver of the stump the chump interview. It's not always. I've I've seen companies that struggle to even get people to apply that still do the stump the chump <laughs> interview because for some reason they think it's the right way to do you know it's like oh i had to go through th- this hazing when i got this job so everybody else does too um, yeah it's funny that you mention that because i spent a lot of years doing it management consulting and um you know a lot of times i'm going into enterprises and in different pockets of organizations and usually when i was showing up there it wasn't because they wanted to tell me how great everything was And some of that would involve redesigning org charts or helping them with their hiring policies. And I can certainly remember times where they were doing these kind of draconian 
interview processes that reminded me of, you know, what a, a hot Silicon Valley firm might do. do. Um, and when I'd asked them about that, like, hey, you know, you seem to be having trouble with uh, both attrition and hiring. What are you doing here? It would be, you know, well, this is how uh, Google hires or whatever. So we're mimicking that. And I'd say, well, you're not Google. I'm not sure why you're doing that. Um, so, yeah, that as an aside, uh, you will get firms that are doing things like that in sort of cargo cultish fashion, um, which kind of just goes back to speaking to uh, why you probably want to try to avoid that as much as possible if you can. Yep, definitely. And it's, you know, kind of another red flag for the organization as a whole, like they're doing things and don't exactly know why they're doing them. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things I've heard you touch on indirectly, um, probably me as well, is kind of the idea of the relative need between the parties. So not in all cases, as we were just discussing, you might have a company with a lot of relative need that's still conducting things this way. But usually, um, if you're being interviewed alongside a bunch of other candidates, you probably need that gig more than it needs you. Whereas as you sort of progress, and especially if you're growing and developing your business and starting to get really booked, once you're booked pretty solid, um, that need flips. And so you would find yourself if, you know, if, imagine a scenario where you have a current client and then like three more lined up after that covering the next two years and you just had all the work you could possibly handle. If another prospect called you up and said, we'd like to work with you, but you're going to have to, you know, uh, invert a binary tree on a whiteboard, you would just laugh. You know, No, I'm not going to do that. Um, so there is, and I, I, this is probably if you're just starting out sort of frustrating to hear, but um, if you keep your eye on the prize of getting a lot of bookings and making yourself in more and more demand, there is some natural relief on this kind of pressure where it's less of a slog. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, really, I, I think everything you've just outlined there is sort of a subset of just having the ability to say no to mm. any given job. And, you know, ideally you have the ability to say no because you've got so much other work that you just don't need to take this low quality gig. Um, but sometimes having, you know, a buffer built up in your bank account is, can also be a shield that allows you to say no to low quality work. Um, That's a great point. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe having a, a spouse or a partner um, that has full-time steady work and is willing to support you while you get going. You know, yep. there's a lot of ways to do that. Yep. Absolutely. And so, you know, something that I have advised to a lot of people that want to get into freelancing and want to start out is, you know, build up a buffer of savings first, stick with your full-time job, put some money in the bank, give yourself three to six months of runway that if you didn't pick up a single new client, you could still maintain your quality of life um, because that gives you the freedom to turn down bad work, which gives you then the ability to say yes to good work uh, because you definitely don't want to get stuck in this vicious cycle of, okay, I'm taking what I know is bad work because I really need the money. And next time it'll be better uh, because when you get to the end of that gig, you're, 
probably still going to be hurting for money. You're still going to be in the same place that you were where you're going to be motivated to take bad work. And by taking that bad work, you're making it impossible for yourself to take better work. And so sometimes you just need to first turn down the bad work so that you have space to do the good work. Yeah. And you're also, the more and more you do that, the more you're building up muscle memory of bad work habits. Mm-hmm. Getting used to, you know, the feast and famine cycles and the uh, putting up with bad clients and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Another thing that occurs to me, if you're looking to maybe tip the sales conversation or just kind of um, find contracts in a different way, is that you could start mentally exploring ways to sort of niche or get more focused And I won't maybe go into that too much, but like, for instance, here's a way to think of it. If you're in a stump the chump interview, it's probably being administered by somebody whose title is architect. And they probably work at a company who has a lot of software developers. But what if you said, instead of, you know, pitching to just any company that's willing to take on, you know, somebody with uh, Python experience or whatever it is you have, um, what if you said, I'm only going to focus on, you know, not-for-profits with less than 20 people working for them or something, almost by definition, those companies would not have an architect or a team of developers. So almost by definition, they will not be conducting this style of interview, and you'll just immediately be having different sales conversations. They might still do some interview, or they might, you know, bring in a consultant to interview you. I don't know. But you're not going to be doing something like this. You'll be having a different conversation. Um So you might niche based on the company, or you might say, look, if I engage with the VP of engineering directly, they're not going to put me through that. They'll just bring me in. So focusing on who you're marketing to can be a big help as well. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. Um, I think think you're right on that there are definitely um, categories of clients that do stump the chump and categories that don't. And I think more often than not, when they do, that's a good sign that they're looking at at you as sort of a digital uh, assembly line worker. Uh, You know, they're looking for people that they can just plug in and out of whatever the task is, and they're not really so much interested in critical thought and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, philosophically anyway, I think over the course of time, you know, whether you want um, to build a business where you stay highly technical or whether you want to grow in a different direction, become more consultative, make an agency, like whatever the case may be, over the course of time, I would say you're naturally going to gravitate towards solving more and more business problems with whatever it is you're doing. So you want, I I would, uh, you know, maybe there are some exceptions out there, but I think you always want to be learning and being able to engage more strategically with your clients and give them advice, whatever it is you're actually selling to them. And almost by definition, um, if you're engaged in this style of interview, they're probably not going to be looking to you for advice at any point. Um, And this might not seem like super actionable, uh, what I'm saying, and and probably it's not, but it's something to pay attention to as your freelance career develops. Like, are you naturally starting to have perhaps more strategic conversations? And if you're not, why not? Um, so that can be something to pay attention to as well. Yep, absolutely. So let's see here. We've, um, 
we've kind of talked at the most tactical about like how you would handle an interview like that while it's going on, uh, how you'd handle the process strategically, and then maybe how you get away from it. Is there anything we have yet to tackle on the subject here you can think of? I don't think so. I mean, I think the the biggest takeaway is probably, you know, that you want to try to avoid these interviews if at all possible. And the best way to do that is to raise the value profile of what you're offering to your clients such that you're talking to people that are making strategic decisions instead of tactical decisions. Yeah, I think, and if I could offer any kind of last parting or closing wisdom, it'd be kind of simple, which is just to like, if you're, if, if this is resonating with you and you're saying, yeah, how would I handle an interview like this? That it might be uh, an opportunity for an inflection point where you can pull back and say, why am I finding myself in these situations? And could I imagine a way out? Like, could I imagine uh, somewhere that I could go from here where this would no longer be true? And hopefully from listening to this, you're hearing that the answer is yes. Like um, neither Jeremy nor me nor anybody else who might be on this show um, wound up in this situation right out of the gate, like over the course of a, a career doing freelance work, entrepreneurial work, whatever it may be, you drift away from this. It, it is possible to do. And it's not just us, like you can do it too. So uh, maybe view this as an opportunity to kind of pull back and, and look strategically at what you're doing and perhaps set some goals and new strategy. Absolutely. All right. I'd say it is then time for picks. Uh, you got anything for us this week, Jeremy? Uh, I think I'm going to mention a book called Authority by Nathan Berry, uh, which, in which he talks about how to build authority for yourself uh, in such you know in ways that will help you be able to skip the technical interviews. Uh, it's you know about writing a book, uh, making money from it, using that to kind of leapfrog into bigger consulting engagements. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there that a lot of freelancers could benefit from. Nice. And for me, I didn't have anything prepared right offhand, but watch how seamlessly I do this transition with a little bit of a plug. If you want to build some authority, my agency, Hit Subscribe, we do write um, blog posts for dev tools companies. And truly, um, you know, just like conference speaking is a great opportunity to build authority, so is writing blog posts and white papers. You can come write for us, and I will put the write for us uh, link in the show notes. But even if you don't come and write for Hit Subscribe, um, putting content out there and building authority in that way can also be a powerful way to generate inbound leads and, and to showcase something during a sales conversation. So that is my pick for the week. Um, and that's going to do it. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we will catch you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.